Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Todd Phillips, an assistant professor of business law at Georgia State University. We'll be discussing his new paper, The Major Question Doctrines Domain, which he co-wrote with Bo Bowman, a PhD candidate at Yale University. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Todd, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be back. Todd, this paper pulls on a number of threads, some of which are not necessarily common topics for the Business Scholarship Podcast. But I wanted to start with perhaps a broad question, given that you are pulling on a lot of threads in this paper. What's this paper about? This paper can most likely be considered an administrative law or constitutional law paper that has significant implications for financial regulation. And we were talking before we started recording about how we were trying to avoid bringing in con law into financial regulation and and corporate law. The ship has sailed for that, unfortunately. We wanted to evaluate the types of agency actions that the Supreme Court's major questions doctrine can be applied to. And we use the SEC and its regulation of crypto assets and its crypto enforcement actions as a case study. In short, we argue that when an agency brings an enforcement action in federal court under color of statute, that is without any notice and comment regulations governing the case, the major questions doctrine has no role simply the statute should apply. Applied to the SEC, when the SEC brings enforcement actions against issuers of crypto assets or against crypto exchanges that facilitate the trading of those assets, what really should matter is the text of the securities laws applied to the facts at hand. The SEC has not written a regulation explicitly stating that crypto assets are securities, So there's just no role for the major questions doctrine. Bo and I are not in this paper alleging that any crypto assets are securities. We are simply focused on the major questions doctrine, processes for applying it, and legal arguments. And we are not making any conclusions about whether or how the securities laws should apply to crypto absent the MQD. I'd like to come back to your argument in a moment, but perhaps to start in an area that may be less familiar for a lot of listeners. Presumably, a lot of listeners are teachers, scholars, practitioners, students of financial regulation or business law, corporate law, more broadly speaking. So I wondered if you could perhaps level set with us a bit about what the major questions doctrine is or the MQD, as you just referred to it as. When I took con law several years ago, when I took administrative law several years ago, I don't recall the major questions doctrine being part of the syllabus. So I don't know if my professor simply forgot to get to it. We didn't get that far in the semester. Is this something that's new? Could you tell us a little bit about the MQD? Sure. The major questions doctrine or MQD stems from the 2022 case EPA versus West Virginia. In that case, the Supreme Court articulated the MQD as a discrete doctrine for the first time. That being said, The origins of the doctrine 
are from Chevron deference, which you should remember from administrative law, from Chevron cases around the turn of the 21st century. In MCI telecommunications versus AT&T, the court held that the FCC could not unilaterally exempt a class of telecom providers from a host of regulations because they weren't willing to give Chevron deference to the FCC. In FDA versus Brown and Williamson, the court held that the FDA could not regulate tobacco products because it would not give Chevron deference to the FDA's interpretation that tobacco is a drug and cigarettes are drug delivery devices. And there are a couple of cases continuing up through King v. Burwell, which is the ACA case, where the Supreme Court held the IRS couldn't be given Chevron deference to interpret the ACA to decide whether tax credits were available to users of the federal exchange and not just state exchanges. However, over the past few years, 2021 onward, the Chevron-based doctrine has been turned into a more substantive doctrine about how courts are to read statutes. So it's no longer about Chevron. It is really now about whether courts can engage in major actions based on the text of the statute. In the eviction moratorium case, the Supreme Court held that HHS couldn't impose an eviction moratorium because it was just too big an action for the underlying statute. In the vaccine or test case, held that OSHA couldn't this vaccine or test rule because it was so big and just couldn't be found in the text of the statute. In Biden versus Nebraska, the student loans case, same kind of thing. The court in these explicitly held that major actions are per se violations of statute unless Congress gives clear congressional authorization to act. A lot of folks now are reading the MQD line of cases as saying there is a two-part test. First, we need to figure out whether an agency action is major, and if it's major, is there clear congressional authorization for the agency to undertake it. One important thing to also know about these MQD cases is that they're really grounded in the Supreme Court's view of separation of powers. So the court has held that in doing this very searching view of statute, they are preserving Congress's Article I authority to write the law and stopping agencies from overriding that Article I authority in major cases. It's here that there are crypto advocates who are using the MQD to allege substantive violations of the law saying that the SEC cannot in any way regulate crypto because crypto is just so major. I'd like to come back to that MQD slash crypto question in just a moment, but perhaps to reorient us a little bit toward the SEC, the securities law question in this paper, 90 years we've had federal security statutes on the books. And during all that time, what is a security? It's still an important question and a question without a single answer, and it's still a question with a developing answer. Noting that you and your co-author don't take a position about whether crypto assets are or aren't securities, could you talk about how the SEC is dealing with that question? What is the security in the context of this relatively new asset class, cryptocurrency or crypto digital assets? Rather than defining what a security is 
via the qualities it has. When Congress wrote the securities laws, they really just listed a series of financial instruments that it says are securities. So stocks are securities, bonds are securities, notes are securities, and a variety of other things, including this broader catch-all term, investment contracts. It was in the 1946 case, SEC versus Howey, that the Supreme Court articulated a four-part test for determining whether an asset is an investment contract. This has become known as the Howey test. And when there are new financial instruments or assets that we want to see if they are securities, we apply the Howey test to them. What the Howey test holds is that an investment contract for purposes of the securities laws is a contract transaction or scheme whereby a person invests his money in a common enterprise and is led to expect profits solely from the efforts of the promoter or a third party. This Howey test, the court notes, embodies a flexible rather than a static principle capable of adaptation to meet the countless and variable schemes devised by those who use the money of others to profit. When the SEC is trying to decide whether or not a crypto asset is a security, they will use the Howey test, just as they've done for decades and decades. The courts have applied the Howey test to a variety of different instruments, and this test has really stood the test of time. There are novel instruments that are being created all the time, and Mm -hmm. the courts just apply the Howey test through the common law, basically, evolving it to meet the various instruments that are being thrown its way. Why should a case about orange groves from Florida from 1946, a world and and time apart from ours, govern questions about whether newly developed financial assets are securities or not? Why might the SEC rely on Howey for defining what an investment contract is rather than try to adopt some rules using the typical notice and comment process to define what an investment contract is, or at least to define whether crypto assets are or aren't securities or when they might be? There are a couple of threads in that question. As the listeners of this podcast know, just because a case is old doesn't mean we shouldn't still apply it. The principles at hand can still be applied to new fact patterns over time. And that's just the way that the common law uh, operates and develops. As for why the SEC is proceeding via Howey and not trying to write a notice and comment rule, we don't know for sure exactly what they're thinking, but we have some ideas. The first is that the Howey test is extremely flexible. It's been used to find that a variety of contracts are securities subject to the securities laws, including there have been a couple of cases about the raising, selling, and delivery of live beavers. Beavers are nowhere in the securities laws themselves, but we can take the principles from the Howey test and apply them to the facts here. There have also been cases about the refining and sale of gold. Gold is a commodity, but these contracts were still found to be securities because the Howey test is as flexible and it's not about the commodity itself. It's about everything that the contract entails. So Howey test is extremely flexible. That's one reason the SEC may be relying on it. Another reason 
is that in our read of the Supreme Court case law, the SEC is actually prohibited from writing a notice and comment rule. In the more recent case, SEC v. Edwards, the Supreme Court noted that the test for whether a particular scheme is an investment contract was established in SEC v. Howey. There's nothing in the Howey opinion or later opinions that gives the impression that the term investment contract was ambiguous or vague. And instead, the court wrote Howey based on the fact that the term investment contract was common under many states' blue sky laws. The state courts had interpreted what the term means. And the court in Howey basically assumed, premised that if Congress was using this very common phrase that had a set judicial meaning, they wanted to incorporate that judicial meaning into the Securities Act. The court reasoned Congress had adopted a meaning that had been crystallized by prior judicial interpretation. And if the phrase has been crystallized, there's no room for the SEC to write a new regulation. There's no ambiguity there for the SEC to interpret. And so the way we read these cases is to say the Howey test is the way that courts and the agency figure out whether or not something is an investment contract. I will note that there have been some professors over the years who have argued that the SEC should get deference. The SEC hasn't written a rule before. And frankly, under the Roberts Court today, I don't think the SEC could get away with trying to write a new regulation to define investment contract. So I think what we have is the Howey test. And as crypto cases are litigated, the Howey test is what applies. Perhaps the urgency of this article is rooted in the fact that the SEC is starting to confront the major questions doctrine, as you mentioned at the top. Could you talk about what's happening with the SEC and major questions doctrine in court? What have been the arguments? Who's making the arguments for one and what arguments are they making? And you and your co-author talk about the potential for doctrinal creep here when it comes to the major questions doctrine. What does that concept of doctrinal creep mean in this context? And how does it apply to some of the SEC's regulatory and enforcement work that is perhaps being challenged or questioned on major questions doctrine grounds? For a couple of years now, crypto advocates and some securities law professors have been raising the argument that the SEC can't regulate crypto because of the major questions doctrine. And now there are several cases that are being heard where the courts are being asked to decide whether or not the MQD does apply. The SEC has brought suit against the crypto exchanges Bittrex and Coinbase. Bittrex has filed an answer explicitly saying that it's making the major questions doctrine the core of its defense. Coinbase has not yet filed an answer. It has indicated that it's poised to do the same thing. The arguments being made are that crypto is economically significant because the industry is valued at over $1 trillion, that it's politically significant because Congress, agencies, and the president are all thinking about how to deal with crypto. Because 
This is a major question. The next step is to evaluate whether the SEC has clear congressional authorization to do something about it. There are several arguments that the SEC's opponents make to say that the SEC lacks this authorization. First, they say that the Howey test is too unclear to provide authorization. We don't know whether several of the four prongs of the test apply or how they apply, so it's unclear. The second argument that's made is that the Howey test simply does not apply, meaning that the SEC lacks any kind of authorization at all. They say that if you apply the Howey test to crypto assets, it just fails completely and totally. And the third argument is that courts are misapplying Howey or are applying it in ways that are inconsistent with what the court originally interpreted it to be. And I find this actually pretty interesting. There is a law firm that has written a very long article reviewing all of the Howey cases brought in federal court since 1946. And it says that in every one of these, there was an actual contract between a buyer and seller where the seller promised to engage in future activities to help make the buyer money. And what they say is that in selling crypto tokens, there is no legal promise to continue work. And therefore, even if the four prongs of the Howey test do apply, they shouldn't because the Howey test just does not fully encapsulate what is an investment contract. Truth be told, I find only one of these arguments to be a actual plausible justification for the major question doctrines application here. If the Howey test is really unclear, that seems like it is potentially not the clear authorization that the MQD needs. But if the Howey test does not apply, or if the Howey test is just the wrong test for interpreting the statute, then this is not a major questions doctrine issue. This is just a statutory interpretation issue. Are crypto assets investment contracts under the securities laws or not? You asked about doctrinal creep. Doctrinal creep is where a doctrine articulated for one situation starts expanding to other situations. We say that there are arguments that are being made to have that happen here with the MQD. If you look at the major questions cases from the 90s through today, they're all about legislative agency actions and specifically about rulemakings. The agencies have asserted interpretive authority to essentially write the law and require that courts be bound to give those agency interpretations deference. Our argument is that this is not what's happening in the SEC's crypto cases in any way. If the SEC were to write a regulation saying that crypto assets are investment contracts and ask the court to apply its regulation, that would be legislative and could be a major questions doctrine case. But what's happening here is that the SEC is simply asking the courts to apply the law, apply the Securities Act or Securities Exchange Act, 
to the facts at hand. It's not putting its thumb on the scale by asserting interpretive authority over what the term investment contract means. We also think that what the SEC is doing here is exactly what the Supreme Court, when articulated the MQD, wanted to try to get agencies to do. Remember that the MQD is concerned about separation of powers. What could be a better example of agencies acting in their separate jurisdictions than an agency bringing an enforcement action, which is a core Article II power, before an Article III judge, asking the judge to simply interpret Congress's statute that was written with its Article I authority. There is no separation of powers concern here. And so we just think the MQD just should not apply. The setting of this article is the Securities and Exchange Commission and securities regulation. But more deeply, it's about an agency bringing, as you say, an enforcement action based on an existing judicial precedent. And so that broadens out the scope of this article in a lot of ways. It maybe raised the question of how should the major questions doctrine apply when it comes to agencies that are acting in some reliance on judicial precedent? How should courts deal with that scenario if the major questions doctrine is brought as a defense to that enforcement action? We think that in situations like what the SEC is doing, the MQD should just not apply if the major questions doctrine were to end up applying. It would prevent the courts from saying what the law is because it would preempt what Congress really wanted the statute to do and instead bring into play this new doctrine about what is the agency doing, whether the agency is trying to override Congress's statute. It just creates much more chaos and upends what we really think of as the core Article Three power to say what the law is. In cases like what the SEC is doing, we think courts should simply apply Howey and see where it leads. So again, we're not saying that all crypto assets will be securities, or even that many will be. It's just that the court has articulated the Howey test. The Howey test is the thing that should be applied. One of the things that critics claim is that if we apply Howey and find that crypto assets are securities, issuers and exchanges will have to comply with SEC regulations. And that's tantamount to just the SEC regulating them anyways. And to this, we reply, yes, it's true that the SEC potentially could write a rule or could bring an enforcement action here. But again, this is what the MQD was looking for. The major questions doctrine looks at the agency action at issue. And here, the SEC is just simply bringing an enforcement action. We make one other interesting argument that's pretty specific to the securities laws. And that's the fact that many places in the securities laws allow both the SEC and private plaintiffs to bring very similar or or overlapping lawsuits, such as, for example, when someone is selling an unregistered security. If a private plaintiff brings a lawsuit against an issue of a crypto asset, It would be strange to apply the major questions doctrine because there's no agency action, there's no agency motivation, 
there's no separation of powers concern because the SEC isn't doing anything. This is just one private actor bringing a lawsuit against another private actor. So we asked, what would happen if the MQD did not apply in cases where private plaintiffs bring lawsuits, but it did in cases where the SEC brings the exact same lawsuit? We think that those opinions would collide and would just create all sorts of chaos. You couldn't rely on cases brought by private plaintiffs or private plaintiffs couldn't rely on cases brought by the SEC. There would just be a lot of problems, which again goes back to the argument that in cases like this, where the agency is just acting core to its Article II authority, or the agency isn't acting at all, just the major questions doctrine shouldn't apply, and court should instead just use the core tools of statutory interpretation to figure out whether the statute applies to the facts at hand. This article, and perhaps to some extent this podcast interview, they have a lot of different audiences. And I wondered if there are any key takeaways that you would like those audiences, whether they're scholars of various fields, or if they're litigants, or if they're courts, or if they're regulators. What takeaways would you like the varied audiences for this paper and this episode of the podcast to, to have? And are there perhaps open questions that you and your co-author are looking to tackle in the future? For the securities crowd, I think the key takeaway is that whether a crypto asset is a security and whether the various securities laws apply to its issuance or trading should really simply be decided by the text of the statutes. Again, because we're talking about Howey, it really should be that the Howey test should apply. I personally, I'm not speaking for Bo here, want to say that as we saw in the Ripple case a couple of weeks ago, it shows that defendants can win their cases against the SEC without relying on the major questions doctrine. I happen to believe that Ripple was wrongly decided, but it still remains that issuers don't necessarily need to rely on the major questions and can instead rely on arguments about Howie to basically win cases. The last thing about where people should go next, we make the argument here that the MQD should not apply when an agency is bringing an action in federal court without regulations There are still a couple of other unanswered questions about the extent of the major questions doctrine's domain. One of those is what happens when an agency brings an action before an administrative law judge, assuming that we still have ALJs sometime in the future? Or what happens when an agency brings an enforcement action in federal court, but under a regulation that's issued? These are questions that the court's haven't answered yet, and neither has our paper. So there is still a broad place for scholarship to examine these various questions. Our guest today has been Todd Phillips, Assistant Professor of Business Law at Georgia State University. We've discussed his new article, The Major Questions Doctrine's Domain, which he co-wrote with Bo Bowman, a PhD candidate at Yale University. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Todd, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.